Welcome to Postcards to the Universe with Melissa Caprio. Do you believe in magic? What if you were told that all you had to do was get a little creative and work a magic spell to bring anything you can imagine into your life? Here on Postcards to the Universe, we will share manifesting, tips, postcards, creativity, abundance, and prosperity. Here is your host, Melissa Caprio. Hello, and welcome to Postcards to the Universe with Melissa, creating the life you crave. How's everyone on this beautiful day? How are you guys doing? It's been a busy week over here. Um, a few things about me. So I was interviewed uh, last week by Kathy Mason from Conscious Business Zone, and it's a weekly show she does with authors and entrepreneurs. And she interviewed me on my book and my project, Postcards to the Universe. Um, it's shared on Facebook, and it's on my YouTube channel. Now I have a YouTube channel. So if you're interested in checking it out, it was a great interview. And Conscious Business Zone uh, features really interesting people each week. So I was honored to be uh, asked to be on the show. So I've also been working away on my book. I've been writing a lot. And I was actually writing about uh, this week's Magic Monday message postcard. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll tell you. Each week, I take a photograph of a manifesting postcard and I focus on an empowering affirmation for the week from that postcard. And this week's affirmation is I am an alchemist. So just a little bit about alchemy. I was writing about this. When you're an alchemist, you take something that is ordinary and you transform or transmute it to something extraordinary. And in the dictionary, it states, alchemy is, quote, a seemingly magical process of transformation, creating, or a combination of elements into something new. And it's also the medieval forerunner of chemistry based on supposed transformation of matter. It was concerned particularly with attempts to convert base metals into gold or to find a universal elixir. And the way I'm speaking of alchemy here for our purposes is the art of spiritual alchemy or the art of transformation of the self. Our only job really in this life is to work on ourself, to transform ourselves and to grow so that we can expand. And I love this word course. It makes me think of the word magic, which I say all the time because I love that word. We're always transforming. In fact, the only thing we can constantly count on that never changes is that things are always changing and always transforming, right? It never changes that it's always changing. And there's just no way around it. And usually we resist change. We go into change kicking and screaming. And the last thing we want to do is change and grow usually because what precedes it is something painful, a painful experience. And we humans don't seem to get that we don't have to have something painful happen before we make changes in our life. But that is what usually happens. A painful situation occurs and it forces us to shift something and it forces us to go within and do some rooting around inside ourselves to find the meaning of the experience. It takes time. We lick our wounds, and we emerge, when we emerge, we are transformed like a caterpillar to a butterfly. 
the alchemist in us takes the metal within us and it transmutes it into gold. And that's why you hear stories from people who took something terrible that happened to them. And instead of playing the victim, they play the victor. I'm sure as you're listening, you can think of something in your life where this applies, where you took your painful story and made it to something empowering. If you want to see my Magic Monday messages that I'm talking about, these postcards, please go to any of my social media platforms or my uh, my website, postcardstotheuniverse.com. And if you're interested in doing inner work exercises and reading people's incredible journeys of transformation, inspiration, and manifesting, please check out my book, Postcards to the Universe, Harness the Universe's Power and Manifest Your Dreams, which you can find on your favorite online bookstore. And follow me on social media and join my Facebook group that I started last year. It's called Postcards of Love. And we share inspirational messages and beautiful art and photographs. And like I said, check out my new YouTube. Um, You can find this latest interview I did. And you can find me there and you can subscribe. So that's cool. Okay, before I bring out my guest today, next week I have Shelly Ratchino, who is a sought-after writer and speaker of the empowerment of women, and her new book, When Women Run the World, Shit Gets Done, Celebrating the Power of Women Now, which has been called a compelling tour de force of sisterhood. I'm so looking forward to that interview, so please join me next week. All right, to get to my super interesting guest today, Stephen G. Post, Ph.D., is the best-selling author of God in Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness, a remarkable true story of faith, love, and destiny for everyone on a spiritual journey. Having hitchhiked along Route 80 from Pennsylvania to San Francisco, based on a premonition, a 17-year-old boy, Stephen, saw a youth leaning over the ledge of the Golden Gate Bridge, ready to end it all. Curiously, This was not his first encounter with the stranger in San Francisco. In that moment, Post realized that he and this youth had been brought together for a reason to save each other. This encounter set the stage for the rest of his life, a path connected by synchronicities, which Post perceived as guidance from God and proof of humanity's fundamental oneness. Stephen also authored Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. And in 2001, he founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which researches and distributes knowledge on kindness, giving, and spirituality. And you can find out more about Stephen if you go to his website, Stephen G. Post, and it's Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G, post.com. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for being here with me today. It is such a delight, Melissa. I love your energy. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. And your book is really great. It's very fascinating, your story. So we're going to talk about God and love on Route 80, which Deepak Chopra has quoted in this highly readable and deeply profound book, Post shares his journey to that which is whole, holy, and healed in all of us. So why don't we start with what prompted you to write it? I, Melissa, have been teaching for 40 years in medical schools, Chicago, Ann Arbor, Case Western, Stony Brook. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have had uncanny experiences of synchronicity, but they're 
unwilling to speak about these things because it's a little bit embarrassing professionally since everybody's a biological materialist. So I wanted to write a book that would free people in this world to talk about those unbelievable experiences they've had, but they've been frightened to talk about. Mm. Yeah, in your book, you start out with um, a dream, the blue angel dream, and that's really significant. Um, So why don't we, what was that? So how old were you when this happened to you? I was 15 years old. I was up in New Hampshire at St. Paul's School, the little Episcopal boys' school at the time, and it recurred uh, six times over a year. Okay. So, what was the dream about? Look, tell everyone what, what it was. What it was. Well, well, the dream was about uh, a blue angel. Uh, very early in the morning, I was typically an early riser. Um, uh, on these occasions, I would feel as though I was not quite in the world or not quite out of the world, kind of betwixt and between. Mm-hmm. And I would see uh, a road to the west. Uh, I knew it was heading west. It was covered with a thick haze, a morning fog. Uh, and as I was walking, I heard a little scratching to the left and I squinted. I couldn't see very far, but I saw the outline of the face of a youthful male with stringy blonde hair leaning off a ledge as if to jump. And then uh, an angel broke into the dream and said, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the mist and the fog all alighted. And uh, that was the end of the dream. Wow. And you had it six times in a year. So you knew it was significant. When we have reoccurring dreams and they're that you know, they're, they're the same like that. We know that it's very, very significant. So you know you got a message and you got visited, right? I felt that way. Not that I was a believer in angels at the time, but mm-hmm. I thought it was somehow or another this universal mind trying to break into my own local consciousness with a message that I did not understand, but I shared it with a lot of my friends in sacred studies class and uh, even went to Yale Divinity School at the age of 16 with my wonderful uh, teacher and mentor, Rod Wells, who'd been a graduate of there, and uh, got to speak about the dream in a, in a class for Masters of Divinity students who were interested in adolescent spirituality. Mm. And did they, was it well-received? Did they all believe you? Or did they think well, like... <laughs> What's he talking about? Is he making this up? You know what I mean? You know how kids can it was, be. <laughs> it, it was it was interesting. It was interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, I you know they 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 asked me if, first of all you know did I have friends was I okay? You know and I said <laughs> yeah I had you know I, I I you know I hadn't worked off too many demerits in the sun. I hadn't had mm-hmm. a dyspeptic hot dog, but somehow or another you know people accepted this and we talked about it and. And uh, it, people were very sort of gently curious uh, about the dream, and it became something that I was I was known for. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. They asked me if a... I'd done anything. Uh, they asked me if I'd done anything based on the dream, and I said, "Yeah, I did something that no St. Paul's kid ever did. I applied to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, just because it was out in the West." And they yeah, were I was getting. 
I was going to ask you about, you know, so when you went to the West, but before we do, and I wouldn't have thought to ask you this question until I was reading information on you about the significance of the color blue, because it really means something to you. So why don't you share that since the dream was about a blue angel? Well, later in life, uh, I discovered uh, through another experience of synchronicity, uh, the power of Chagall. And I actually uh, love blue because Chagall painted blue angels all of his life. Uh, Uh When he died in his studio outside of Paris, he was painting a blue angel because when he was just 17, uh, he did not want to work in his father's factory. So he left, he ran away to St. Petersburg and he was sleeping in the alley and suddenly uh, blue descended filling the alley with this luminous blue brightness. And then it ascended as a, as a white angel uh, appeared. And the next day he painted his first beautiful painting and it's called uh, the visitation and it's of a blue angel. So when you heard that and you read that, you must've thought, wow, that's really interesting since what I had was a blue angel, right? (laughs) I finally had a friend. I finally had a friend (laughs) who could understand me. I mean, I I never met Chagall, of course, but, uh, you know, Chagall enters into the book in a very powerful way. Oh yeah. So you believe, do you believe this was a premonition dream that you had? Because you talk about premonitions. I wasn't sure at the time, but mm-hmm. what happened was uh, that's, that next summer, so a year and a half later, I was mm-hmm. supposed to go to Swarthmore, and I was home, and Rod Wells had gotten me a job tutoring in the Bronx. My parents put their feet down. They said, it's too dangerous, and I argued with them for two and a half or three days, and finally my mother said, well, we're not going to cover your tuition if you insist on this. So I said, okay, Dad what am I going to do this summer? And he, he was the president of W and J Sloan's furniture store on fifth Avenue. And he knew all the factory owners around New York. He said, you can work in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I drove dad's Mercedes 190 secondhand seen better days to Patchog to build De Bono's factory. And I cut cardboard for two weeks, sweating it out with no air conditioning And uh, after two weeks, I realized, you know what, I'm going west. But it was the push of the argument and the factory and the pull of the dream. Mm -hmm. So you're saying it was the combination of all of it that really pushed you to go west. So when did you when did you start your journey west? How how long after the dream did you actually get out there? Well, now it's about two years later. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm so 17 years old. you're 17, right. You're still a kid. You're 17, okay. 17. And I drove out a Friday night from Bill De Bono's factory to West Hampton Beach, Long Island, which is kind of a hangout for kids. And I had some friends out there. And about 11 at night, I told them, you know what? I don't think I need to go to Swarthmore. I don't think I need an education. Uh, not right now, anyway. And I'm going to follow the dream. And so I got in dad's car and I Mm -hmm. drove down the Sunrise Highway. I drove through the Midtown Tunnel. I got over the George Washington Bridge. I had never driven out that far before. And there was a sign that said Route 80 West. And West Mm -hmm. was the dream, not 95 South. Sorry for you Florida people. 
So <laughs> I went west. And and the amazing thing, here's here's a case of of alchemy, okay? Um mm-hmm. I, I it's about five in the morning and I'm in the middle of Pennsylvania on Route eighty near the Lewisburg exit, and suddenly the generator on this car breaks down. And that means there's no power, no electricity. The engine stops. But just before that happened, though, I was thinking about doing a U-turn over the midway and going home so that my reputation would be untarnished. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that's not the way the universe was working. So I was able to pull the car over to the right on the shoulder. It was deader than a doornail. And I reached into the glove compartment, picked out a piece of paper, and in pencil I wrote, to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this car to Henry A.V. Post, 44 Davison Lane East, West Islip, New York, 516-669-5655, from his son, Stephen, who no longer works in the lampshade factory. And then I put my thumb out with my classical guitar oh my and my Siddhartha, and I, this big truck came by, and I was on my way west. Oh my but I God. thought that okay. the breaking of the car was, 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 was an alchemical experience because somehow or another, the universe wasn't letting me go back home. It was driving me to the West. That's perfect. So this is, we're going to stop right here. We're going to take our first break and we're going to come back and then we're going to find out more about this journey on Route 80. Stay tuned. Hi. I'm Melissa Caprio from Postcards to the Universe, creating the life you crave. Do you believe in magic? What if I told you all you had to do was get a little creative and work a dream spell to bring anything you can imagine into your life? Well, guess what? I've got the spell for you. Postcards to the Universe, a global movement for manifestation, is a casting magical tool for you to use whenever you want. How does living in passion sound to you? Join me in my movement where you get to create in the magical playground. Let's think outside the box and do some playful conjuring. By casting out our desires with a manifesting postcard, we explore our hearts and allow the alchemy of our dreams to appear. And don't forget to tune in each week here on Ohm Times Radio with my show, Postcards to the Universe, Creating the Life You Crave at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. I share tips on creativity, abundance, and prosperity, and you will be introduced to the coolest guests, trailblazers, mystics, and creatives who enrich our lives. Welcome back. Okay, so I have Stephen G. Post on, best-selling author of God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. So, Stephen, you're, you're hitchhiking now west. You're a kid. You're 17. You had this prophetic dream, an angel. You saw a, a, a somebody getting leaning over a, um, a railing on a bridge, and you were told that you have to save this person's life. So as you're heading west, how long does it take you to get over there? Because where you find the, the young the man is in San Francisco, correct? Right. Well, the truck driver got me to Grant Park in Chicago, and I spent a couple of days there playing classical guitar on the benches and Mm -hmm. collecting money. Then I got a ride with a VW van full of hippie kids, and we got out, by the way, to Lincoln, Nebraska, and one of the gals in the van said to me, you know, you should really call your mother, because now it had been about three or four days 
So mm-hmm. we pulled over, and I went to a payphone, and I called Collect, of course. And my mother said, Stevie, thank God you're alive. Now we can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, Mom, you called the Pinkertons. Didn't you get my note? <laughs> that was a terrible thing to say. <laughs> and anyway, I got, got out on Route 80 all the way to San Francisco. And I spent the summer with my cousin, George Lamont, who had mm-hmm. done a couple of tours of duty in Vietnam. And, and I played Lobos in Hispanic restaurants. And I, I chanted at the Nichiren Shosho Buddhist Temple on Chenery and Market Street. And I was happy as could be, but then I drew a really bad draft number and I called Reed College, even though I turned him down and I said, look, I don't want to go over there. It's not my kind of war. So Mm -hmm. can I get in on the entering class? And they said, okay, which was amazing. And so early one morning in early September in front of the Nichiren Shosho Temple, uh, uh, I met with George and, and friends from the temple and Gus and a mentor and they gave me a Gahon zone, which is a, a a Buddhist scroll of good luck, and explained it to me a little bit. And then I took the Market Street bus. I got to the Golden Gate Park. I walked across the park. It's now about maybe 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'm walking up that red entranceway to the bridge on the left, and it's so foggy that I could only see, like, really a couple of feet ahead of me. And I just kept walking through the fog, I got to about the middle of the of that big, big huge span, and then I heard this noise to the left of me, and I and I squinted and I looked, and there was a guy who was a little older than me. He looked like anyway, and he was he was about to jump, and I looked at him and he looked at me, and I said, I truly hope you're not planning to jump, and then he screamed at me. He just screamed. He quoted Macbeth, you know, life is empty nothingness and all that. And I said, you know, it sounds a lot more realistic when you're out there on a bridge about to jump uh, than it did back at St. Paul's in Memorial Hall when we used to do that play. And we got into a conversation and and I said, look, I want you to listen to me. I believe it or not, it's shocking, but I think I came out here for a reason, which was to encounter you right now in this place. I'm not sure of it, but that's what I think. And I explained to him the dream, the visit to Yale Divinity School. I explained to him the whole story about the factory, about my parents, about the car on Route 80 and the note to the Pennsylvania police and calling mom from Lincoln, Nebraska. And and he was completely mesmerized. He said, you are really crazy. And I said, well, but you're the one out there on the ledge, you know? Right. And <laughs> so I said, if you if you come in off the ledge, I'm going to give you something that's going to turn your whole life around. It's called the Gahon Zone. And again, he was cursing, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I, I, I said, I've got it in my backpack. So I pulled it out and I unscrolled it. And I said, just come over here and... Let me explain it to you. So he stepped over the railing and he stood there next to me and, and I, um, uh, I explained it to him. His name was Harry. And I said, it's a, this is a symbol of universal mind and interconnectedness. And I said, if you take this, it's going to turn your whole life around. But to do that, you've got to promise me one thing. You'll, you'll go down the bridge headed south right toward the city, because I was going north toward Oregon. 
And I said, um, you have to take this note and bring it to 16 Chenery Street, which is where my cousin George was the superintendent of an apartment building. And I, and I said, dear George, this is Harry. Uh, he's having a hard time. Can you take care of him? He let him sleep where I slept on the floor, bring him down to the temple, introduce him to Gus and try to try to help him out. And and so uh, that's the last I saw of Harry. We waved and I walked north on the bridge, you know, because I'm going to, to Oregon. And as I was walking north, suddenly all that fog just completely disappeared. And it was a beautiful blue sky. And I just felt somehow like I was in the dream. Wow. And that and that was that that never left me in my life. I never I never lost that feeling that somehow two years earlier and three thousand miles away at a very sort of stodgy New England prep school, I had a dream that nobody could understand, not not even, you know, all the people there, Charlie Scribner and you name it, all these incredible people there. Everybody was tolerant, but no one thought it had any meaning or depth, and neither did I until the bridge. And that's when I became an absolutely uh, convinced person that there is this one mind that we all participate in. Yeah, you talk about that a lot in the book, this one universal mind. And it's interesting. Why do you think, do you think that you were somehow tapped into to, to his universe, like to his, what was going on with this, this person that you had no idea who they were. They're 3,000 miles away from you. Like, why do you think you got the, the dream? Why do you think the premonition came to you? To me personally? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a really great question. Um, I, I think that, you know, in life, we, there's a difference between destiny and goals. Like, goals are the mm-hmm. things that we kind of conjure up uh, short-term ambitions, and then there's a destiny. And sometimes this universal mind and heart wants to break us away from our own narrow goals so that we can discover our destiny. Mm-hmm. And by, you know, so that next fall, I, you know, I actually took a course called Alchemy 101 with Steve Jobs. I won't go into that. That's funny. That's interesting that I picked alchemy today and you took a course on alchemy. That's interesting. No, no, no coincidences, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but then, so the book is, is really about episode after episode of synchronicity Mm -hmm. leading right up to the current moment. And I, you know, I've been working hard. I've, I, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, life has been demanding. I have a family, but always to me, if you ask me where I'm from, I know this will make you laugh. I just say, look, I'm from Route 80. <laughs> no, that's good. So you're, you're one of those people that you see the synchronicities where some people think it's random, but you believe there's a divine intelligence, a universal mind that is helping guide us. I don't want to say it's it's controlling us because I don't think that's the case personally. I think mm-hmm. guiding us would be a better better word um, in the directions yeah, cool. of our life by the people that you meet and the situations you find yourself and the experiences you have. And you talk about um, a meeting a particular person who helped mm-hmm. you found the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, which is really interesting. So I'll let you share a little bit about that. Yeah, well, absolutely. So life is a journey. And, um, 
we don't really make our lives, but we respond to the remarkable things that we encounter, the people, the, uh, the experiences we encounter. And our job is to be uh, open to surprises, okay? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like even, even that, uh, but, but this has constantly been confirmed for me. So even that, that next January up in Oregon, it was, it was a cold uh, evening. It, was, it doesn't snow up there, but it rains a lot. It gets slushy. And I'm sitting in the, in the coffee shop about 11 at night, and this guy comes bounding in named Andy, and he says, who wants to go for a, a ride on my new Harley Davidson? And I said, yeah, like a fool, and I went out. And <laughs> he suddenly, he went to 180 miles an hour. Oh he went God. through every stop sign, every red light. He drove south on, on the Pacific Coast Highway. I was screaming. I was crying. I thought I was dead. And he was yelling into the air and into the rain. And then he did this incredible U-turn, and he dropped me off exactly where he had picked me up. I struggled to get across the ravine to Ackerman Dormitory. I never answered the payphone. It wasn't something I did not do, but I'd given my mother the number. So as I walked across the threshold, suddenly that phone was ringing, and I felt almost pushed toward it. I can't explain it. It wasn't something I saw, but it was just an energy. I picked it up, and I said, hello, and it was my mother in New York. 3,000 miles away, and she said, Stevie, I just had this incredible dream. I woke up from my sleep. I'm sweating, and I just had this feeling that you were in great danger, if not dead, and I explained to mom that, yeah, you know, that's exactly what happened, and so that again convinced me that our minds are not just, you know, local. They're not just Mm -hmm. cells and tissues and so forth, but there's something about our consciousness that is much more universal and much more mysterious and I call that universal mind, that is, if you want to call it a supreme being, you want to mm-hmm. call it God, that's fine. Mm, I had a similar experience when I was a kid. Um, yeah, it was very similar. I was playing on my bike far away from home, and all of a sudden I had this feeling I had to get home, I had to get home. I didn't know why, I just had to get home. Like, And it wasn't dark yet. We used to be able to play until it got dark out, right, outside. And and, um, I had to leave early, and I just remember going home so fast. I couldn't wait to get there. And as soon as I drove my bike up on the driveway, I was probably 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. My mother ran out of the house. Thank God you're here. They had to take my youngest sister. She was only, she was a baby to the hospital because she smacked her head on the fireplace and she needed to go to the hospital and she was bleeding to get stitches and didn't know if she had a concussion. And so I had to stay with my other sister. You know, somebody Mm -hmm. had to stay with my other sister. So I was pulled. Something was pulled me. Yeah, I've had a few of those in my life. So I guess that's a a premonition, right? Your mom had a premonition. She felt you were in danger. Well, that's right. And these experiences, they they mainly happen uh, in the context of love. You know, uh, Sheldrake's Mm -hmm. work on this is very interesting that there he calls them morphic fields of love. So, you know, your mother, your sister Mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm That's what that's what pulled you. So there's a sense in which this universal mind and universal heart connects us based on the energy of love. It's so fascinating. I'm sure people are telling you stories now all the time since this you talk about this. And what is your research on unlimited love? What is that about? <laughs> well, so, you know, fast forward, I mean, I went to yeah. the University of Chicago and and did a doctorate with Mersha Eliade and Joseph Campbell and all kinds of people. 
and I've been teaching in medical schools because I, you know, I, I, I like the light life sciences mm-hmm. and I, and I enjoy medical students. Uh, but um, <clears throat> in about 1990, uh, mm-hmm. I met a philanthropist named Sir John Templeton, who was a billionaire and was starting a foundation. And I met him in the lobby of a hotel and we started talking about divine love. And the conversation was so great. It went on for a couple of hours and we became very good friends. Fast forward uh, in 2000, um, uh, he sent me a fax from Nassau in the Bahamas. And he said, Stephen, we need to start an institute to bring the highest levels of science to this incredible power of love, but not just, he said, not just human love but the love that made humans. In other words, he's talking about some powerful energy of love that is really at the very beginning and the very heart and sustaining essence of the universe. He believed that, and I believed it. So I faxed him back. I said, Sir John, what should we call it? He said, he faxed back, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. He'd written a little book of that title, uh, Unlimited Love. And so I faxed back. I was thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to be a little embarrassed because I'm surrounded by these. I was at Case Medical School. I was doing studies on genetics and Alzheimer's. My, a lot of people are going to kind of raise an eyebrow about this. So I faxed back, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism because that's a nice, dry, mm-hmm. sciencey mm-hmm. word, you know. Yeah. And he faxed back, no, Stephen, I think unlimited love, up to $8.9 million dollars. And I faxed back, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. And we were off and we funded all these studies all over the world. And we tried to keep them on target, you know, really looking at Mm -hmm. spiritual experiences, people's experiences of divine love and whether they had them directly or through others and all kinds of things. And it just went really great. And the Institute is alive and thriving. It's just been a joy of my life. Wow, that is so fascinating. I want to talk a little bit more of that. Um, so, but we're going to take our second break here. So stay tuned, guys, and we'll be back in two minutes. Stay tuned. Welcome back. So, Stephen, I, I was thinking during the break, do you think that the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love that you you, coast, you started with uh, Sir John Templeton, do you think that's like a precursor to part of the reason that you wrote your book? Your, your latest book, God in Love on Route 80? Oh, yes, very much. Uh, you, you know, uh, the, the book explains, you know, a, a, a prayer. A, 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 my, actually, my daughter uh, was going to go to St. Paul. She decided not to. And so we went to uh, Cambridge, to Harvard Square, just to spend the day before we went back home to Cleveland. And I prayed at Harvard Chapel for... Uh, an institute that would take all of the great science and theology and world religions and merge it all together to study this divine love. Again, not human love, but the love that made mm-hmm. humans. And, um, uh, you know, X number of years later, uh, I got this incredible invitation, uh, actually in 1999, to, to chair a conference at MIT uh, on empathy, altruism, and, and agape love, or spiritual love. And from then it just unfolded. 
So absolutely. I mean, that I, I think that part of my I could not I never imagined the idea of having an institute for research on unlimited love. You know, it didn't come from me. It came right. from the universe. But I had to be pulled out of my comfort zone and I had to be out on Route 80 in a sense, you know, to just recognize it and grab hold of it. Yeah, you had to go through the experience and because the book is really um, a spiritual journey, really, that's what the book is. And mm -hmm. it's it's just interesting if we're talking about um, universal mind and divine love, we're talking about, you know, like you said, divine mm -hmm. love, it's different than human love. It, it's not a personal love. It's different, right? It's not personal because people associate love with, oh, I have to have a relationship and it has to be personal. But divine love isn't like that. Right? Or am I getting this wrong? I'll no, I think you're right. Over here. <laughs> well, well, it's it's a it's a spiritual energy. Uh, mm -hmm. I it, you know I I mean it's 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 love in a, in a sense. Mm -hmm. You know, love is personal, but it's also so universal. You know, it's 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 about the the security and well being of all people and of all of life. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's 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 more profound than that. But people feel invaded by it. I mean, I've I've done these studies of individuals experiencing divine love and the, the word invasion comes up a lot. They, they say it's not something that came from me. I felt like somehow it just, it was just, it just came into me and it came from something outside of me. Uh, and, 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 and so it's very, very powerful. And, and I, uh, I think it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's the energy of of a a divine entity beyond time and and space at the beginning when there was no beginning from which all things came and that underlies and sustains the universe as a lot of the quantum physicists think is the case. It's hmm, interesting. And so, how can we um, practice? Being more in divine love. I know in your other book, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, you, how to live a longer, happier, healthier life by simply the act of giving. You talk about giving and how volunteering and giving is an act of love and how that is a connection to the divine mind. And you also talk about the golden rule and how important that is. So my question then would be, how could we humans practice in our spirituality better way of utilizing and and being more in divine love yep good question so i Thank when you. i was when i was in new hampshire uh you know i was at the time i guess i was 16 we had norman rockwell come come up from stockbridge massachusetts he was the great painter and he had painted a iconic picture of the golden rule for the cover of the Saturday evening post. And it's all these people from every possible background and they're peacefully focusing their mind on the words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to ask Norman Rockwell himself mm -hmm. um, if he was a spiritual man. And he said, you know, I'm not that religious. He said he was Episcopalian actually. Um, but I think that there is a spiritual energy. And in this image, everybody is thinking creatively about how they can contribute to the lives of others and is taking their minds off the problems of the self 
and it's expanding their consciousness. And, and there's a halo in this painting. And he pointed out this incredible white circle, uh, which I had not detected. And he said, you know, when you, when you live in this way, when you are asking yourself, how can I benefit the people around me? Then you come into this area of spiritual energy. He said, it's like surfing. So when you surf, you, you know, you got a lot of surfers down there in Florida. You got to paddle really hard. But once you catch the wave, then you're on the wave's energy, and all you have to do is balance. And that's what I think is the reality. I think if we, if we live by the golden rule, that's why the golden rule is at the beginning of all the great spiritual traditions, the Upanishads and whatever, not the negative version, don't do unto others, but the do unto others, the, the positive version. If you live that, you will get in tune with this universal energy, and it will capture you. And, and, and that, I believe, is, is absolutely the case. Mm, yeah, I do so too. I, I get personally. up in the morning. I get up in the morning, and I meditate, and I think about all the people I'm going to see, because I see a lot of people, and I ask mm. myself, how can I be of benefit to them? Do they need compassion? Do they need, I call it, care frontation? Do they mm. need uh, mirth? Do they need loyalty? What do they need? And I envision that, and I I go through it in the in my mind, a kind of uh, intuitive, uh, almost a Zen exercise. And then when I go about the day, I'm able to connect with people in a very meaningful way. Hmm. Is that how you explain um, the universal mind and how it speaks to us? Yeah, I mean, I I think that. Um, when you ask you know, the questions and, and you see what comes to you? Well, you know, I, 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 I have, a, I have a, an old style of keeping my daily schedule. You know, I, I probably mm -hmm. run into 15 or 20 people a day in these busy university settings. But I envision them, uh, you know, between 5 and 6 in the morning, I envision everybody. And I kind of know some of the things they're going through. I know their narratives a bit. And, 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 and so I can just intuit, well, you know, I want to approach this person, um, you know, with, with a little bit of mirth because this whole COVID thing is being mm -hmm. such a challenge for everybody in this big hospital. Or, you know, I just feel how I, you know, the, the kind of the essence of how I want to connect with people. And, and that's intuitive. And I think it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the way the divine works mostly in my life. Not that I don't sometimes, you know, when I'm coming to work and somebody has the audacity to slow down at a yellow light, I can still fall full chested on my horn. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm yeah. not perfect. I ain't perfect. Of course. But, but I do believe that if you meditate deeply about the golden rule and think about the expressions of love, which is what, you know, why good things happen mm -hmm. is about. There are 10 expressions of love. Uh, forgiveness is one of them. Some people just you know, a, a nurse who couldn't for, forgive herself because <clears throat> she thought she made a medical error that was the cause of a child's death. You have to just, you know, I, I, I'll think about that when I see her. You know, I'll say, um, those who make no mistakes make nothing, and you live a beautiful life, and you just have to accept this. It comes with the territory. And then just, you know, you just have to kind of figure out what people really need deep down underneath the sort of routine of their lives, what's really 
in their heart mm. and, 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 and their struggle and the burden. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Um, so what, what, what do you want us readers and what messages do you want us to get from God and love on Route 80? What should we really be understanding when we're reading this book? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, the, que- the, the Larry Dossie wrote the foreword. <clears throat> and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he wrote a wonderful book called One Mind, and he wrote another book called Premonition. I love Net- Larry. He's great. And um, I just want people to understand that um, despite all the chaos and confusion in the world, we're much more connected than we sometimes realize. And I think that there will come a time when we all fully understand this reality that there is actually only one mind. We all have a little bit of it, you know, it's on loan for, if if you will, but um, there's one mind and, and, and that's the mind of the universe. And, and when we come into that realization, then we will have, you know, real peace and real harmony and real understanding. Um, So that's, but the other thing too is, you know, I, I, my favorite quote, I got a favorite quote for you, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're interested. Yeah. Eleanor Roosevelt, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, uh, she, she, was a, she was great. So one of her quotes was, the future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've the heard fu- that before, but not know. for a while. Mm-hmm, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I go with that because, you know, my, I mean, my life, I, I, frankly, you know, it, I, it, it could have been written off. I mean, people could look at that experience I had as a 17 year old going out West and think, you know, that was completely crazy. And, you, you know, you could wind up, you know, in a seven, 72 hour psychiatric lockup over something like that. But <clears throat> no, for me, you know, I had a wonderful feeling about the truth of these things. I, I, what, I didn't know it. But I experienced mm-hmm. it, and it's gotten me through life, and 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 you know I'm 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 still that kid on Route 80, even though I'm a little older now. <laughs> but you know I'm still yeah. immature, so that makes up for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's pretty interesting, and um, just curious. I don't want to forget to ask you this: Did you did whatever happened to um, what's his name, Harry? Harry? The guy on the bridge. Yeah. Did you ever find out what happened with him after you guys left each other? Yeah. So he did get to George. Well, so I didn't hear about Harry, but I came Mm -hmm. back that Thanksgiving from, I came down from Oregon back to Chenery Street and cousin George had a nice Thanksgiving party with a string quartet and all those kinds of things. It was really kind of fun. And Harry had left, uh, He'd gotten it together. I don't know if what happened to Harry was sort of temporary and maybe uh, drug-related. It's possible, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but anyway, he seemed to get it together. And George, who was very competent, George was a graduate of Chapel Hill in Chinese studies and psychology. Uh, he really took care of Harry, and Harry went back to North Carolina with a girlfriend. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen Harry in his adult life. I don't know what's going on with Harry, but... But um, I guess I should try one day to reconnect with him. But um, but that's what happened. He he was okay. Oh, good. That's good. 
So that dream you had two years before is what forced you inside because you had to get there. You actually found a way to do it. Maybe you weren't even conscious that you had to get there, but you had to get there. And it saved this person's life at that moment. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So I can see the connection of the divine mind and the universal love very clearly when when we talk about it. So that's really, really interesting. And you do so many more interesting things and we only have a couple minutes before the show's going to end. There's like so much more, but I did see this question and I I thought this was kind of interesting because you talk about anger and it's necessary sometimes um, and it can be positive. And we are so much anger in our culture right now. So why don't you explain a little bit more about what you mean about that? Well, Um, I think that anger is okay in small doses. People naturally get angry at certain situations, but if you dig deep, you can connect with inner peace and you can control that anger and you can get beyond it. So I think Mm -hmm. anger is is good in part because it requires us to be spiritually disciplined. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of anger and divisiveness uh, in, in, in the world today. Uh, We've got to be really careful not to get so caught up in depersonalized language, dehumanism, demonization, de-dignification, I call it. And I see it, Mm -hmm. All the time, and 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 we need to we need nonviolent communication. It's what we really need, and we need to learn how to do that. And we need to learn that we're not divided; that we are ultimately one human species, and we're all part of the same one infinite mind. And we have the spiritual wisdom from every possible uh, tradition uh, and part of the world, every 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 religion, every complexion, every ethnicity. So I really believe in 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 the in the mission of creating a more unified world, and and that's what I'd like to like to see. Mm, that's perfect. That's a great way to wrap things up. I want to thank you so much, um, Stephen, for being with me today. And listen, everybody, to find out more about Stephen and his work and his book, go to his website, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G, post.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Postcards to the Universe with Melissa, creating the life you crave, wishing everyone a wonderful week filled with joy, abundance, and love. Peace. Thanks, Melissa.